good to be with you here today. I trust you guys are having a great day. No one is. Okay, well, very good. <laughs> Let me try that again. Is anyone having a good day today? There we go. Yeah, there we go. It's coming together now. Absolutely. Good deal. <clears throat> well, and we find uh, ourselves as Paul is... Um, made mention of it today and uh, that there's just a whole lot of things going on in our world today. It's, it's, uh, wow, right? <clears throat> the best I, description I can think of is if somebody came January 1st of 2020 and told me what had happened so far, I would say, you need to write books because you have an imagination. <laughs> but it's true <laughs> what's taking place. No, we don't. We we have uh, the future. Futures out there, actually. I was uh, there's a I just just came to my mind right now, and when I do that, I want to say that. But there's a man that um, by the name of Jim Birdwell that has been our auctioneer uh, for for many years uh, for the Calso. He's actually been diagnosed with lymphoma, and I texted him early in the morning, but uh, this morning. But I <clears throat> one of the things I said we would be praying for him, and I would ask you as our church body be praying for Jim and his family. Uh, very great man, actually. And uh, I said in there, some of the text, I said, even though we don't know the future, we can know the one who holds the future. Amen. That's really where we're at today as well here. I don't have a clue about tomorrow. I don't even know what's going to happen tonight. In fact, you don't even know what's going to happen in the next few minutes. <laughs> Neither do I, quite honestly. Okay. But that's where God really wants us, is to be totally and completely dependent on him. Um, we're going to make a bit of a switch. We've been in John for a number of weeks, uh, looking at a number of different things, and uh, it's been very enriching to me, and even to have a pun involved, it's been very fruitful. John chapter 15 was uh, amazing, actually, in, in the depths that we were able to get. I don't know why, but God, in about the middle of the week, wanted me to go somewhere else, and uh, you know, I'm just thinking about the crisis. I would have to say our nation's in a crisis today, and it's not the first nation that's been in a crisis, and undoubtedly will not be the last. But what does God do? Who does he look for, for his, in a time of crisis? And what are some criteria? What are some things that are of essential importance to this person or persons that God looks to use? And again, um, it's almost like a violin. Uh, there's something about, you give me a violin... Um, you should have someone else play the violin, right? You and Jack Benny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a lot of similarities probably. But there's a story mentioned of a, of a, a man um, that was extraordinarily gifted, um, violinist, and he knew of a man that had a collection of a number of violins. And he had tried to sell, he had tried to purchase this one because it was of, to him, it was one that, one to really be of a masterpiece. And for he being a tremendous violinist, there would be nothing of any better than that. But the man wouldn't sell it. And he was pretty firm because he had a collection and he wanted to keep them. And on this particular day, this gentleman went and he said, would it be okay if I at least played on that violin? And he said, absolutely. He was a man of music as well and enjoyed it. And as he picked up that violin, he made it literally music to the world. It was unbelievable 
And as he finished, quietly, released the strings and was going to put it away. And the man that owned it said, I cannot sell it. I will give it to you because you deserve how you can use it. You see, when, we're, when God plays us, as only God can play us, we should give him who we are. Because that's the sweetest music that we can ever be, is being at the hands of God's fingers, his wonderful, majestic actions that literally knows just how to play us perfectly. And that's what he's looking for right now. He's looking for men and women and young people to be able to play in a time of crisis. And I was thinking about where could we look for guidance? Because one of the things that absolutely, I think without a doubt, that is incredibly important during a time of crisis is having someone that is tremendously committed to God. Circumstances and situations are very easy. And it's amazing how manipulative they can be, can't they? They, they can wage war on us quietly. Pragmatism becomes a term that we could use if it feels good or whatever it works for you, do that. I can't even say anymore to vote by your conscience. I'm not sure America has one that hasn't been seared or scarred. And of course, a nation that's made up that way, and we would make that type of a statement, there are individuals that would fall within that very realm. So what, how can we literally make a difference with God at the helm of our life? I can't think of any situation that may be more dire, more circumstantial, savage in the sense of a nation that has lost their way. They have lost literally all of their moral girdings. It's over. And I'm afraid somewhat for our country and not just our country, the world is losing its way. I just have to go to the book of Daniel. So let's go to Daniel chapter 1. We have no way of getting very far today because I think the history, the historical setting and context is of a huge magnitude for us to understand really how important this man, Daniel, was and is even to us today. It sets the mark on many things, the book of Daniel. So with that, let's just go to the book of Daniel. Let's start in chapter 1 and we'll read the first eight verses. Daniel chapter 1. This describes Daniel's circumstances. Daniel 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. The king spoke unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, the children in whom was no blemish but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability to in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans." the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. 
Now, among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. May God add a special blessing to reading his word. Let us just pause for prayer before we go any further in our study this afternoon. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that you have given it to us to guide us, to direct us, to show us of your love, to show us of our sin, to show us of our need of redemption, to show us that Jesus Christ died and rose again to conquer sin once and for all. Thank you, Father, as we can look from its beginnings, the creation of the world. In the beginning was the world created, and to its ending, knowing that we will be at home with you, those that have trusted Christ as Savior, for eternity in heaven. That story between the front and back covers of the Scriptures is literally the lifeblood for those that seek and yearn for truth. Father, today I would ask that the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth, as Jesus was so prominent in saying to his disciples, to seek the truth, the truth will set you free. His life was truth. All that he was is truth. Father, that's what you are. You are the source of truth. Father, these moments we want to be yours, working in and through us. We would ask that you would take us just where you want us today, that you would fill us with the Word of God. The Holy Spirit would have his way. And relationally, Father, we will have never been closer than these moments now before us. We thank you in advance for what you're going to accomplish, because it's not us, it's not anything of us. It's all about you. Now, Father, guide and direct us using the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I think one of the things that that makes the book of Daniel come alive even further with more zest and, I would just say, strength, an overpowering supremacy and majesty of a God that when we put into context in the time frame of what's just took place. Here we are in the year 2020 A.D. And it's crazy, isn't it? Well, I'm going to tell you something. Back in the B.C.s, it was crazy too. <laughs> it was crazy too. In fact, there's uh, four major prophets in your Bible actually follows them to a degree. Um, one that would have been, uh, well, let, let, let's just take a step back. Um, let's start writing some things down. There's going to be quite a bit of history today, which I think history allows us to see how active God is, because history is really his story. God is fully and completely in control of all human events, past, future, and present, thankfully, right? So in the year 605 is actually the time of which we are, whoops, 605 B.C., is the time frame in which we find ourselves on Daniel chapter 1. 605 B.C. 
the one thing that we want to be careful to note is that God has always given warnings before there is judgment. He doesn't just, boom, show up and lay the law down without giving some sense of warning. He's really good at that. Always has been? Certainly. Think of Nineveh. What did God owe Nineveh? Nothing. But he made, he made a way for the inhabitants of Nineveh, which is thought to be probably 600,000 men. So 600,000 families, if you think about it. That's a fairly large place. And he put that on one man's plate. His name was Jonah. Jonah being a very subservient lover of God, wanting to do everything that God desired of him, he was very committed to doing it God's way. Oh, no, that's the wrong guy, isn't it? That's the wrong Jonah. That's not the Jonah that God called. In fact, this Jonah was very, what word shall we use? Resistant, strong-willed, magnanimously opposed. He had no love for the Ninevites whatsoever. And by the way, they play into this story a little bit. Nineveh was the capital of what country or what kingdom? We might even say it that way. They were the capital of Assyria. And if you think about it in a broad way, uh, if you go from Israel and you would go eastward through Mesopotamia, it's, it's a very large land mass. And to the northern part of that would be Assyria, and to the southern part of that would be Babylon in this day and age, what we're talking about. And the Assyrians were known to be very cruel people. They were very powerful, particularly in that, around that 700 B.C. Now, if, just, we're going to work off of 605 because when we read Daniel 1.1, 1, 1, that's exactly the year that we're talking about. Okay? So about 740 B.C., the Assyrians actually were very powerful already. And Jonah would have given his dissertation. It took a little while to get there, too. Have you ever done that with God, where God called you to do something, then you didn't necessarily go the right way for a while? In fact, no one, you, you know what Jonah did. He went through absolutely 180 degrees in the wrong direction. Got on a ship. He says, I can get away from God. Have you ever tried to get away from God? No, you might have even done it subtly. With a little bit of compromise. That's going to be our key word as we study through uh, Daniel. Particularly about his life. Daniel was uncompromising. He was extremely committed. In fact, compromise and commitment are very two distinct and antithetical concepts. Daniel was all about commitment to God. And compromise was what everyone wanted to have involved in Daniel's life. Well, the thing that took place was, if you, let's go all the way back for a moment. David was the king that literally was a man after God's own heart. And David was that guy. Yeah, he, was, he had his faults. There is absolutely no question. But at the end of the day, it seemed like he would get it together, repent of his sin, and move the, not only himself, but the nation in a direction that would please God. And he did it regularly. And again, I'm not trying to, because he had a list. If you, if you put under the sin category, whew, it was long. And it was hard. And his family actually paid the consequences for it. But, but by, by and large, this was a man that God had picked because David's predecessor was a man by the name of Saul. And Saul was picked by the people. What do we know about Saul? Just real quickly. Did anybody see a picture? Have you ever seen a picture of him? No, but we did through the scriptures uh, illustrations, and that was he was tall, dark, and handsome. The dark part I made up. But it made you see what really 
They're trying to see that they looked at him for appearances and his strength from all of the outward things that we would take position on. And God picked David by looking on the heart. What did Jesus Christ come to do? He came to look in the heart. He has a way of doing, he has a way of doing that with us. Really, literally, doesn't he? He knows just where to push. Oh, that sin. I need to work on that one, right? He has a way of doing that. But let's go back to our story. After David, his son took over. And David's son was Solomon. Um, we read this verse last week. In fact, it's a verse that's actually very common. But let's go back. Uh, hold your place in Daniel. We'd, we'll be back. But we're going to spend some time in uh, some of the other uh, Old Testament books. Let's go to Second Chronicles. Chapter 7, and I would like to start in verse 12. Normally, we just start in verse 14. But this will give us context. Now, David being Solomon's father, and David, I'm sorry, Solomon has just finished the house of the Lord. We'll pick that up in verse 11. I said to start in verse 12. Let's start in verse 11. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 11. And we're still kind of jumping in the middle of something here, but hopefully uh, we, can, we can pick it up. And then I would encourage you to even read uh, starting pre more further back in 2 Chronicles. Here we go, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that came into Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord, and in his own house he prosperously effected. This is a, this is a huge project, by the way. I'm not going to get too much into it. But this is like, if you've ever built something, uh, uh, ladies, uh, husbands and wives, one of the largest stretches that you'll ever have, they tell me, is to build a new house. That can stress relationships, okay? Now, Solomon, I don't know what it did to him, but it really must have done something to him because he added a whole lot of wives from the very outset and only did he built God's temple and he built a house. And it ended up building many houses. This is a time, though, that there's a lot of, and there's a sense of, I would say, what's the right word? This is a culmination of some things that really are going to really look fantastic. So watch this now. This is God speaking. Now, after this, this event, it's verse 12. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. Whoa! That is big. That is monstrous, isn't it? God has come to Solomon. He said, basically, I'm approving of what you finished in the sense of this place, this house of of God, literally, the house that God would inhabit. Oh, that must have felt really good, right? And I'm here today, just as a little of a side, because if you think that's cool, you guys are so amazingly blessed because today, if you trust Christ, God lives within you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Think of that for a moment. Does that not help us to maybe see things a little clearer? Oh. Maybe sometimes it's a little bit convicting, isn't it? But let's go back to our text. And in verse 13, it says, If I shut up heavens, sorry, if I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, that's the context in which we love to pull that verse out, don't we? Now, that's given directly to Israel. I make no, 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 no bones about that. But we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he doesn't, he's not subject to change. Thank you, God. 
What if salvation was only good enough for 100 years, the way we're doing it? And you pass away, and then all of a sudden, God, you know, I don't really like it that way anymore. I think I'm going to change. I can't think of anything worse to have that characteristic of God to change. I want my God to be the same all the time. This, this verse fits people. It fits people. God asks us to be faithful and obedient. All people, all places, all time. That's a fact. That's a truth. Aren't you glad? <laughs> so even though that's not given directly to us, it reveals to us what God desires, what he wants. Now, that was given a very long time ago. Now, something got messy. David's life was messy, but Solomon's life became much, much messier. In fact, we're told that he had, between wives and concubines, about a 1,000 women in his life. Does that sound complicated? <laughs> that sounds really complicated. And by the way, nothing against gals at all. Not, that's not the deal. But the point of all of nothing, what's, what's our key word? I'm not even going to put it up because I want to drive it in your mind. So when we leave here today, you're going to say, you know, the one thing that Daniel we could count on, he was not, he was not compromised. I have to believe, but, but let's take a step back. Now, some of these arrangements or some of these women that were in Solomon's life, it was literally done for professional or foreign aid reasons. And you say, what? Well, what would be a better way to get along with a nation than to marry the daughter of the king? Well, think about that for a while. Well, not necessarily, right? But that was actually his first <coughs> marriage to consummated was through a treaty. That, that, those are called treaty deals. But you see, once you compromise on that level, it's a small wonder that it did keep growing and growing and growing and growing. That's how compromise is, isn't it? It's, it's getting off track. And at, 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 it's almost always compromise is chosen or allowed. You can do it either way. You can allow compromise. It's not like you necessarily choose it, but it's usually at the sense of the easiest or the least path of resistance. That's how compromise happens. Oh, well, that would work, right? Without giving much thought. Especially if someone somewhere else says it's a good idea. <laughs> Peer pressure, we find that to be very often, very often the case. Uh, I'm getting, do you see we're not going to get very far today? Have you got a grip of that? But I think it's so important for us to lay the historical context to all of this. Now, Solomon, in all of that, in fact, he became the wisest fool that ever lived. Now, if that is an oxymoron, I can't think of anything that's greater than that. But, but it's absolutely true because God invested in him an amazing mind of intellect, wisdom, and discretion. And he could fix problems that he didn't really probably even understand. How would you like to have two women coming before you with one child and says, it's mine. No, it's mine. How are you going to do with that? Right? It sounds complicated. It was complicated. And Solomon, I'm sure it didn't take him very long, I'm sure. He said, well, we'll find out where the love is from. That's what we need to do. We, find out, we need to find which woman loves the child. That's all we need to do here. Well, what would be the easiest way to do that is to ask them? Well, of course not. They would both say that I love the child, right? And you know what he did. He said, uh, bring me a sword. Let's cut the child in half, and then you can each have half. Oh, boy, that's going to cut through, isn't it? See, that's wisdom. That was given by God. And, of course, you know the result is the woman that really is the child whose it really was. Oh, would rather give it to keep it alive. And the other one said, that's fine. Let's go ahead and do that. See, and Solomon said, well, give it to the one that's pretty. 
You see, that, that's wisdom from God. And that happened through his life. In fact, what was that, uh, that princess or that queen of what, Sheba. Sheba? She came and looked this whole story over and she blew her hair back. Those are my words. She couldn't believe this guy. That's who Solomon was. But by the end of his career, just before he died, he literally had thrown all of the things that God had entrusted him to, all because of compromise. That's literally what happened. And then his son come on board. His name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a spoiled brat, literally. And he had, he had counselors, two kinds. He had those that were from his father, and he had those that were kind of his generation. And he said, what do you think? Oh, you just crack the whip hard. That's what you need to do. So he laid that out, and guess what happened? Just like God actually, we could go through that. I, I just don't have time all of this. You're going to have to kind of follow through with me. But literally, the kingdom was divided. It was divided not in even half. Ten tribes went with a guy by the name of Jeroboam. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to him in just a second. Because now we have a kingdom that under David was beautiful. God was working. In fact, Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. And God said, I'm going to live there. I mean, you're talking about the supreme God of the heavens that said, I'm going to live in Jerusalem. Ah, Fantastic. And literally just one generation later, keep that, I'm I'm trying to make this contemporary. This is not far off of America, what's going on right now. One generation later, Solomon's son makes some really unhealthy choices. Literally because his father made some unhealthy choices. And he's been caught down a pathway that literally is taking a nation and has torn it in half, if you will. It's not really half, but the northern kingdom, Israel, has separated now. And Judah, which is actually Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes, they are distinct and separate. Rehoboam is remaining the king of Judah. And Jeroboam is now the king of Israel. Now, Israel was one that strayed even further Jeroboam, he's a fearful of what? What would Jeroboam... Now, where, where's the temple? In Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is in Judah. So now think with me for a moment. If you think worldly, oh, we can't have that. No, no, no. We cannot have worshiping coming from Israel, of which I'm the king, going down into Judah, which I'm not the king. That's a problem. That's a severe problem. So what shall we do? I know what we'll do. We'll set up two brand new places that we can worship. And if you follow the context and you get in the scriptures, he's not concerned at all whether God's there or not. Now, I would want to go where God's at. Right? Why worship? What did we find out worship was in the last couple of weeks? Worship is really repeating back to God what we know is true from his word. That's worship. To say back to him what we know to be true about him. It's that simple. Isn't that fun? Like you guys sang songs. Praise we prayed. That's literally worship. And it brings honor to God and it blesses our heart. That's the way it works. Peace and joy become ours. Okay, you see I'm just bouncing around a little bit. Okay, so now what would you do? Well, that makes common sense. That makes perfect sense. For behavior. They had a committee. Jeroboam's worship committee. What are we going to do? Well, they came up with this great idea that they're going to have two brand new places in case and kind of centrally located. Well, that sounds good. Centrally located worship centers. <laughs> of which God is not there. Because they haven't asked him to be anywhere there. 
It's just about looking good. Control. Power. And the significant part is, which really did, it, it, it started the trail of corruption, of compromise, and complete isolation of God. Because in those two worship centers, they set up golden calves. Now, why would you do that? Well, in the committee, there was probably someone that remembered way back when, when Moses took an extended trip in the mountain to visit with God, that Aaron, being beside himself because the people were kind of getting nervous because they thought they lost their leader. Show me some people that lost their leader. What happens? Fear? Unknowns? We got to do something? And Aaron gets all of their jewelry, and he said, I threw it into the fire, and out comes his calf. We should probably try that sometime. Just take your earrings, ladies and gentlemen. Or mostly ladies, I'm hoping. Okay, at any rate. And you'd throw them into the fire. Sometimes I get ahead of myself. Throw them into the fire, and I'll bet, I, I bet a calf will pop up. Can I sell it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. That's great comeback, great comeback right? Now, the, the scary part, and this is, this is the really sad part, is they worship that. What would possess you to do that? Now, in Jeremiah Bohm's defense, I can see it sounded like a plan to keep your people home. Don't let them get distracted with Judah. Don't let them get hung up on this guy called Rehoboam, which is Solomon's son, which I hated that man. I don't want any affiliation whatsoever. So this should work. You see, without God involved, nothing works. Nothing works. It was a disaster from day one. And do you know, if you, if you really went after it, and again, our verse for our country, our own personal lives today, is Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purposes. That's fantastic. So how do we love God? We love the things God loves and we hate the things God hates. How much love do you think God had for those people worshiping golden calves? Horrible. It was absolutely terrible. Would, couldn't, could you make it any worse? Yeah. yeah, you could have multiples. You could have Moloch. And you could have, in fact, as we go on, we find out that this Manasseh, which is down the trail, actually in Judah. I'm getting ahead of myself. Because this whole history thing starts to make more sense. Because even in America's history, you can see those places where we deferred and compromised on truth. We didn't think it was important to maybe follow that line. It was okay. Let's, let's let that go. That's okay. That should be fine. Don't you think there were some people that probably knew they should go to the temple and worship in Jerusalem? They said, it'll be okay. I mean, they're going to get back together. Let's look at it. If we, just, if we just play nice together, it'll work. <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. It's like pulling rope, right? Satan keeps taking, he keeps taking slack. He's good at it. Pretty soon that rope gets just a little tighter, a little tighter. And you know the end. Well... If you were going to take the Israelites, now I'm talking about not the Israelites in their, in their entirety. I'm talking about the nation, the, I'm sorry, the, the, the kingdom, the northern kingdom. Let's, let's do northern and south. How's that? The northern kingdom is Israel. Southern kingdom is Judah. The northern kingdom under Jeroboam is making some really rash, vile, horrible mistakes right out of the box. This place is going nowhere. Now, in its history, 
how many good kings did they have? And I'm describing them, I'm describing them from God's perspective and his description in Scripture. Okay, it's not someone else just saying, you know, I think he was okay. He looked good on camera. He actually had some really good ideas. And he was good looking. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God's description in 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. That's really description. How many good kings, from God's perspective, were in Israel through its entire course of... And by the way, do you... Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm ahead of myself. How many? Is there one? Two, two? There was zero. What? There was zero? Zero? <laughs> what? Well, there's another year that I want you to remember. <clears throat> And it is 722 B.C. Seven twenty-two B.C. Now, this would have been a time when Isaiah, the prophet, and let's, let's name our major prophets for a moment. We started out with, I've already given to you, so just say it again. Isaiah. We're going to see if you guys can talk. Isaiah. And he was actually about 100 years that he was uh, prophesying before 605. He would have been prophesying about 740 B.C. He was giving warnings particular to Judah, but nonetheless, a prophet's a prophet. He's speaking for God. And you want to read the book of Isaiah, you'll find a lot of stuff about him talking about... Now, at the time, let's be careful now. In 740 B.C., things were pretty good. Mark that. 740 B.C., a lot of truth, a lot of good stuff. God's in the temple. It's looking good. But that erosion... Well, that's another word for compromise, isn't it? Erosion. There was starts to be points and things that were giving way and giving evidence of compromise and erosion. Isaiah, uh, did I, do you think Isaiah just got up in the morning and said, you know, I think I should just become a prophet. No. God said, Isaiah, I want you to say some things for me to the people. I want to get them, in fact, 2 Chronicles 7.14. That was given to Solomon. <laughs> so he comes on the scene. Widely accepted, that was not true. In fact, in every case of which compromise has taken a strong root, the level of acceptance of truth is very minimal. One of the exceptions to that, which you already made mention to, is Nineveh. Nineveh is a godless, godless place. And when Jonah finally ventured in and said, prepare for the, for the I don't, how did he say that? Repent for the, I'm going to paraphrase it. Repent because destruction of the Lord is coming soon because you have sinned and it is over. And from the very topless level to the poorest people, they all got together, including the animals, they say, and they literally repented. God can't stand having a fantastic repentance for his love to be shown. And you know what? He, he stopped it. He stayed it. Didn't last very long, though, because he went right back on that course. But for that time frame, those people repented before God, and he gave them additional years to enjoy. Isaiah comes online, and he says, guys, you better watch out because things are falling apart. Be careful. That was about 100 years before the 605 B.C. that we just spoke of in Daniel 1.1. Then Jeremiah, you've heard of Jeremiah. What's he called? The weeping prophet. There's actually two books attributed, Jeremiah and the Lamentations, that's, that's a happy book, right? <laughs> and I will say, for Jeremiah to stand for God in the times he did make him a giant and a hero. Because he was, if it could happen, it was happening to him. 
That was the contemporary, literally, of Daniel. And Ezekiel, he would have been part of this time of, what should we call it? Um, deportation. There's 70 years that, starting from, from 605 B.C., that literally the Babylonians were the aggressors and they took what they wanted and they owned the world. It's amazing how those events just take place, don't they? Habakkuk, remember that, that prophet? There's something that he said. He said, God, I know we need judgment, but where's it going to come from? And God said, well, I've prepared this group of people, this nation that I've designed perfectly to go ahead and settle a score that the Israelites need to get their act together. I'm tired of their sinning, and I'm going to use this nation to bring them back to me. And I'm sure Habakkuk is trying to figure out, I wonder who that would be, because it's got to be a nice people. <laughs> no, it was, it was horrible. It was the Babylonians. And he says, what? How could, you, how could you punish us with someone that's worse than us? God's in charge of everything. He rose Babylon out of the dust. They lasted literally no more than 100 years, and they went right back down. Isn't that amazing? You think of that. But how did that happen? 722 B.C., the Assyrians took in and took over Israel. That should have been warning. <laughs> if you're Judah, <laughs> whoa. God was not messing around. It's going to happen. Did you hear about the atheist that was, uh, he was going to prove there was no God. And what he was going to do is he said, I'm going to grow corn, but I'm only going to work the ground. I'm only going to do my work on Sunday. I'm going to prove that I can raise better corn than my neighbors, the Christians. And I'm going to do my work on, quote, the Lord's day. And he did. And he goes through and, he probably was a pretty good farmer, by the way, that he wouldn't admit where those skills came from, but whatever. And he gets done, and he harvests it in September, and he makes, sends a letter to the editor of the local newspaper. I've proven there's no God. My corn yielded more than my neighbors, who are Christians. There was a letter back to the editor that said this. That didn't prove there wasn't any God. It just proved that God doesn't settle his debts on September. <laughs> Isn't that true? Because God, this is what's really cool. We're talking about these dates. God is on EST, eternal standard time. This morning, you guys, or last night, set your clocks back an hour. I want to be on God's time. I want to be on eternal standard time. Because I want him working on me and through me to affect the world in a way that makes him be glorified. There's a whole lot of not glorifying now in the land of Israel, that northern kingdom. In fact, this is what's interesting. How many of them returned back from the northern kingdom after their demise or deportation through Assyria? None. They've lost, they're lost. They call them the ten lost tribes. They, as that nation, they're gone. They intermarried, dispersed. Now, I, want, I do want to bring something to your attention, whether it is or isn't, that's up to you. Because that bothers me a little bit. Because if you read in Revelation, God is going to have 12 tribes. Hmm. Now, is God capable of bringing? Of course he is. But look at this. Let's go to our text. We'll jump right back off here. But go back to Daniel for a moment. Daniel chapter 1. And I find this interesting. And as you think about it, let's see. I'm all the way. I can do, my, 
I went right back to John. I'm, that's where I'm defaulting back to is John, okay? But uh, let's go to, <laughs> try one more time. Let's go to Daniel, and we're going to read those first few verses. Once again, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Okay, did you see that? King of Judah. So did you see the distinction? I want you to see that. Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Where is, where is Israel right now? Where that? Because see, what's our year? 605. Where is Israel? Northern kingdom? They're gone. They're sucked up into Assyria. They've been, they're gone. Okay? So he says that. Jehoiakim, king of Judah. We'll talk about him in a minute. King, the king of Judah. That would be the southern kingdom. Came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, again Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar. Now that that's the term. I, sorry, I've got two things going on. I've got to got to solve this one. So Nebuchadnezzar is the king of who? Babylon. Okay, and then it says from the land of Shinar. Well, that's the beginning of the existence of Babylon. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11, you find a guy by the name of Nimrod. And Nimrod was the beginner of the land of Shinar or of Babylon. That's its absolute beginning roots is the land of Shinar. Okay, same thing, same term, same place. Let's just say it that way. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Judah. Doesn't say that, does it? What does it say? Israel. Now, let's think logically. Let's say that this, this Assyrian invasion in 722 B.C., it's probably not brand new news to those people either because who was prophesying in 740, 750 B.C.? Isaiah. What was Isaiah saying? Clean up your act. Clean up your act. What do you think could happen where there's no borders or no distinctions, essentially, between northern kingdom and southern kingdom? What do you think happened to maybe the godly remnants of the northern kingdom? What do you think they might have done? They probably slipped into Judah. Why wouldn't you? Right? I think that's a very distinct, a very large distinction to say Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and then to say that they selected children of Israel. I think all 12 tribes are actually right there within that nation of Judah at this point in time. 722 B.C., nobody comes home from the northern kingdom. It's gone. They say the lost ten tribes, as a whole, those lost ten tribes. Nobody knows where they're at. Okay, did you see that we went down that little branch? Let's cut that one off and come back to where we're at. Let's talk about another warning. This would have been a huge warning. Would you not have agreed? Huge warning. Plus the prophets. Jeremiah is right in the middle of it now. I want to show you how bad it got. Not too early. Not done yet. I'm going to go somewhere else. So, <clears throat> how old is Daniel right here? Because this is important. I've just painted for you a moral corruption. I've painted to you a nation that's lost its way in following God. <coughs> the northern kingdom's gone. They've lost it. But Judah, that's where Daniel came from. How old was he? Yeah, that word, in fact, let's go to, you're still in Daniel right now. That word that we find, there's some things the king wanted from these that he was going to hold hostage. That's a whole other theme. We'll maybe not even get to it today. But he says in verse 3, he wanted certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. Watch, children, verse 4, chapter, first word, chapter 4. That word children in the Hebrew literally defines for us the ages from 14 to 17. 
That's, that's the age group that we're talking about. Likely, very unlikely for it to be older than 17 and very unlikely to be younger than 14 because there was this, in fact, we, they, Jews even do it today, the sense of that a, a child turning into an adult and that, what's that, what's that ceremony called? Bar mitzvah, okay. And when does that happen? 13 years old. So the chances are he's probably 14 to 17. And it's thought, if, uh, uh, the guessing is probably 14 to 15 years of age. Now, I want you to list all of the 14 to 15-year-old gals and guys that you would feel confident to be about 900 miles from home, no mom and dad, to make a stand for God. That's not, a, that's not a common, in fact, it's thought. Now, I can't find this in Scripture, but I will read a lot of different aspects of history, and, and uh, I, would, I would just say, yeah, I'd say historical documents. Do you think those four guys, remember, we've got, it's, why is it easy for me to read the wrong names? i got Daniel, right? But then it's, see, you did the same thing, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? That's their bad names. That's the ones that are really named after the Babylonian gods. But, but see, you do the same as I. And I know these three guys. So there's four listed. Do you think those are the only four hostages that were taken from, it, from uh, Judah? You've got to be kidding me. No. It says they picked them from all of Israel. It's thought there could be somewhere between 50 and 70. Okay? That throws a little different light on it. See, I like to know that. You know, wouldn't it be nice if it was they, they took four and all four stood together and just took on the king. That sounds like a great story, but it's probably not the way it is, is it? There's always some sense of, what's the word? Compromise. So to think now, and let's just, let's even go ahead and say there's 50, not 70, but you see where I'm going. Four out of 50. <laughs> That's actually 14 to 15 year olds. I'm surprised, right? they know everything. And sorry about the 14 to 15 year olds that are here today. It's just the way it is. You'll find a point in your life where you will know less than you know today. I did. But here we go. How old then, how old is, we're, we're probably thinking that he's, 15, let's make it 15, makes easier math. So, and of course, BC, you add, you don't subtract. So that's about 620 BC. 625, that's somewhere in that frame of mind that he would be. And my mind is going, what kind of a upbringing, what kind of a family life? And it was from the royal family. Did you see that? These are are kids of, I'm going to say privilege, with nothing intended other than the fact of what's stated. They came from the royal families, or thereby. What was it that would have made this young man, Daniel, and his three sidekicks to be that committed in a foreign land? I'm going back into like 620 B.C. So I'm going to want to know who's king then, right, in that time frame. Okay, now let's just hold that question and let's start to look a little bit through world events. The Assyrian kingdom is about to come to an end. There's a guy that I'm going to try to give his name. Asherbanipal. I think I'm close. Asherbanipal. Do not ask me to spell it for you. But Asherbanipal is literally the last leader, the last ruler of the Assyrian kingdom. And when he died, his son failed to keep it together. 
But he had a co-regent. You know, as, 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 you would, as he would get older, he was going to spread duties and allow someone else that he trusted to be part of the king. And Assyrian kingdom was, it was a kingdom. It was not a state. It was the real deal. And think of it. They're already stretching way out into Israel now. They've taken kingdom. They, you know, you've got stuff to do. Okay. Well, this guy's name, this co-regent, his name was Nabopolassar. Nabopolassar. Okay. Guess who he is? Oh, he just said he was the co-regent of this other dude, right? He is the father of Nebuchadnezzar. Now you say, you just told me that he's the co-regent of the Assyrian Empire. Ah, but what do you do when the leader dies and you're a co-regent? You take it over. And that's exactly what he did. In fact, he went, the co-regent, this guy, Nebuchadnezzar's father, takes over the whole thing, and there's this huge battle called Carchemish, the Battle of Carchemish. I hope I've said it right. That's the way it looks to me. And now what's happened, it's the, it's the rest of the Assyrians. Mr. Nabopolassar is coming to take the finish the job. And guess what? There's other people in the world that are looking at this situation for opportunity. There's a guy by the name of Pharaoh Necho out of Egypt that says, this is my time. Because obviously the Assyrians are weak. Obviously the co-regent is not as strong as he thinks he is. This is my opportunity to go take care of business, and I'm going to be the world leader. So here he comes trotting through. Where? Judah. Now we can even find this in the Bible. Who was the king during all of this stuff. Oh, I didn't tell you this. I asked you this. How many good kings for Judah? Now, they lasted 350 years. 350 years took place. They had 19 kings. Okay, I'm going I'm to help you through this. How many good kings? Let's take a guess. 19 kings, 350 years. How many good kings? Excuse me? Three. That's actually a good guess because the other one had zero, right? <laughs> Sounds logical. And these guys lasted long. I like it. I like it. That's a really good guess. Anybody else? Three. Higher or lower? Higher. Okay. Well, another guess. One more guess. Got it? Ten. Okay. So we have three, ten. What do you guys think? I'm not taking a chance like that. It actually turns out there's eight good kings and 11 losers. Well, one of those kings we want to read a little bit about because he was in charge when the Pharaoh Necho was cruising through Judah. Let's read about him a little bit because it would have been right about the time frame that it would have been a very instrumental time in Israel's history, uh, Judah's history. Let's go back to, let me see, I, I'm going to have to find it. So stay with me. We'll go to Second Chronicles. Oh, there's one other warning sign. While you're looking, while you're cruising the Second Chronicles, do you remember something else that happened to Judah after the Assyrians had taken over the northern kingdom? Another warning sign. And I'm saying this because God is warning America too. In many ways. This is my point. God never throws judgment out without warning people. In fact, for us as an individual, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 is a verse you need to cling to because there's not even a temptation that can take you without God giving you a way to escape it. Isn't that fantastic? 
He doesn't say he wars. Okay, so I don't know the year, but there was a man by the name of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. He was one of the eight good ones. And he was the king of Judah. And here comes none other than you know who, the Assyrians and Sennacherib, because they say, well, if we got Israel, we just as well take their, their buddy, the, the southern king, they're ours too. So they blow into town and they surround. And he, now it's starting to make sense, isn't it? And Hezekiah says, we're not going to buckle. We're going to trust in God. We're going to do what God has asked us to do. And you know what happened on that very night? 185,000, not 1,000, 185,000 Assyrians, an angel killed. And what did they do? They went home. (laughs) You know what? When we as a nation trust God, evil goes home for a while. Now, they always come back. Isn't it amazing? Evil never, it's relentless. But I'm going to tell you, when God wins and you put God number one, Evil has to relent because God is in charge. They went home. That went, wouldn't that have been a great day? <laughs> what, was the, what was the front page of the Jerusalem Times on that day? Hezekiah warred. No, God wards off the Assyrians. These were the world power. Isn't that fantastic? We should be saying amen, hallelujah. Now, was that not a warning sign again? Wasn't that a confirmation? Yes, it was. Now, let's go back. I should have been looking at what I was talking. That's hard for me, though. Um, let's go, Second Chronicles, we'll find it. Okay, that's it, right there. Now, uh, and we have, let's find out follow our king of God. So Hezekiah, he, he, he like ruled and reigned for like 55 years. He was an old bugger. For the most part, did right, did right. Not all the time, but did right. He had a son by the name of Ammon, right? No, no, Manasseh. I've, I'm one step ahead. I'm one, one step, sorry. Manasseh. Manasseh was a jerk. Loser. He was nasty. In fact, he even killed his sons in the fire to Molech, trying to appease gods. That's Manasseh. That's Hezekiah's son. How much did he learn? It gets better. God is so gracious. In fact, God literally kicked the legs out from underneath Manasseh, he had nothing laying on his back. There's nothing going on. And it says that he turned his heart toward God, and God restored him. Oh, my goodness. See, there's hope for everyone, literally. Isn't there? Isn't that fantastic? And then Manasseh has a son, and his name is Amon. He's a jerk beyond jerks. Oh, how can this go like this? Choices. Choices. And now, let's look. I'm gonna, we're going to pick this reading up. Um, verse 21, 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Let's go there. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. We're going we're gonna to do some reading here, okay? 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 21. Ammon was 2 and 20 years old when he began to reign and reigned 2 years in Jerusalem. But he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as did Manasseh his father. For Ammon sacrificed unto all the carved images which Manasseh his father had made and served them. And humbled not himself before the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. And Ammon trespassed more and more. Isn't that amazing? That, if, you're on that, if you're on that road of compromise, oh my goodness. Naturally, you just keep going down it deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Keep going. 
And his servants conspired against him and slew him in his own house. But the people of the land slew all them that had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his stead. So this would be Manasseh's grandson. Now, how old? Stop. Don't read. How old do you think that this Josiah is in taking over the helm of a nation that's racked in, apparently, I would say, treachery and conspiracy and corruption and you name it? I mean, it's, it's not going good. Right. In fact, his grandfather sacrificed his son to a god in the fire. Did God just give up? No, God doesn't give up. Well, let's read. How old do you think? Let's take a guess. How old do you think Josiah is? Probably some of you know. Let's there's guys in the, how old this is what i want to trust my country with right now i want to trust my country with an eight-year-old <laughs> whoa eight years old but you know what god always has you know what these are committed partners these are committed standing in the gap kind of people that are standing up for god even when things aren't good and our nation even today has a lot of people that are standing in the gap wanting to do God's work his way. And that's what we want to get to the bottom of this study about Daniel, is preparing ourselves to do things God's way and to stand firm. Because with an eight-year-old left to himself, couldn't have possibly this story taken place. But I want to show you the importance. We marvel at the fact that Daniel was 14 to 15 years of age in 605 B.C., But even more miraculous and more marvelous is the fact that God had surrounded this little eight-year-old boy with enough goodness and forward thinking and truth to make a difference, to turn that nation with that kind of a situation of complete failure to get a nation that was wrapped up in revival. Let's read. Let's read for a while. Uh, Chapter 34 and verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father and declined neither to the right nor to the left. What do we call that? Commitment. And, it's, it's a little tricky, not compromising. Don't you love the straight line? Just give me, remember what Job said even? May my eyes neither go right or left, but stay on you. That is a fabulous prayer. That focused on God is so good for us. It keeps us out of the, out of the ditches of compromise. It, just the way that's said. Can you see it? Oh, I like it. I like it. Let's keep going. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, so that means he's 16, he began to seek after the God of David, his father. Now, did you see that for a moment? For eight years, he's got people that are certainly helping him, guiding him, instructing him. Here, you know, he's 16 years old, and all of a sudden, Wait. I want to seek after this God of my father, David. Keep going. And in the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the great carved images and the molten images. That's all of these idols that have been constructed over the years. And he broke them. He broke down the altars of Balaam and his presence and images that were on high above them. He cut down and the groves and the carved images, the molten images. He broke them in pieces, made dust of them and strewed them upon the graves of them that had sacrificed Unto them. Does this sound like a cleansing? Ooh. 
This is a change. He burnt the bones of the priests upon their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so did he in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, even on the Naphtali with their mattocks round about. And when he'd broken down the altars and the groves and had beaten the graven images into powder, cut down all of the idols throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. Now, in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, did you see that took some time? Did you see that? That took a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of commitment. He sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maziah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder to repair the house of the Lord his God. And when they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites had kept the doors, had gathered the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim and all the remnant of Israel, and of all Judah and Benjamin, and they returned to Jerusalem. And they put it in the hand of the workmen that had the oversight of the house of the Lord. They gave it into the workmen that wrought or worked in the house of the Lord to repair and amend the house, even to the artificers. And builders gave they it to buy hewn stone and timber for couplings and to floor the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. Do you see this? All of this stuff in disrepair, no one cared. See, when you're on the wrong road, when there's compromise and evil is being, is being taken over, the things of God are crumbling. And that, that's common, that's universal, isn't it? Let's keep going. And it says, the men did work faithfully. The overseers were Jathan and Obadiah, the Levites, and the son of Merah, and Zerachiah, and Meshullam, and the sons of Kohathites, and to set it forward in the other Levites, and all that had skill of instruments of music. Also, they were the overbearers of burdens and were overseers of all that wrought the work in any manner of service. And of the Levites, there were scribes and officers and porters. When they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. This is like finding a Bible. (laughs) How many houses today in America wouldn't be able to find a Bible? I think it's a larger number than we can imagine. Whoa. In fact, who was that that said there was a famine in the land? The word of the Lord. That's where America is, isn't it? I think it was Amos. I think it was Amos. Okay. Boy, it's easy for me to get off track. Is it? Where did I leave you? There we go, verse 15. Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah delivered the book to Shaphan. Shaphan carried the book into the king and brought the king word back again saying. Now stop for a moment now. I'm going to assume that this is somewhere in the 18th year of his reign. We've not been told anything changed. Did you see that last time we checked in? So this, this kid is now older. How old is he? 26. So basically from the time he's 8 till he's 26, he doesn't even know the word of the Lord. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I'm not. Let's keep going. And Let's see, where was I at? 17, there we are. And they have gathered together the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it into the hand of the overseers and to the hand of the Lord. We're, we're fixing this place up. We're fixing this thing we call the temple, the church. But look, then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest have given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Oh, fantastic. It came to pass when the king had heard the words of the law that he rent or tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah and Hahiakam, the son of Shaphan, and Abdon, the son of Micah, and Shaphan, the scribe, and Azahiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me. And for them that are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found. 
For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do after all that is written in this book. Do you know what I'm, con- I'm pretty much convinced that he was reading? Probably those words that were given in Deuteronomy and to those other kings, particularly Solomon, you must faithfully obey me and I will be with you. And if you don't, that's what Deuteronomy, write that number down. We won't get there today. Deuteronomy chapter 28. It talks about God's requirements, if you will. Verse 22, And Hilkiah and they that the king had appointed went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvath, the son of Hazra. I should have probably read some of these names before I jumped in here, but keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college, and they spake to her to that effect. She answered them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Tell you the man that sent you to me. Thus saith the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the curses that are written in the book, which you have read before the king of Judah, because you have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be poured out unto this place and shall not be quenched. And as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, so shall you say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which thou hast heard, because thine heart was tender, And thou didst humble thyself before God when thou heardest his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof and humblest thyself before me and did rent thy clothes and weep before me. I have even heard thee, saith the Lord. Behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place and upon its inhabitants. So they brought the king word again. Then the king sent, gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. The king stood in his place, made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies, his statutes, with all his heart, with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant which are written in the book. And he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations out of the countries that pertained to the children of Israel and made all that were present in Israel to serve, even to serve the Lord their God. And all his days they departed not from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. That what we've just described is a major revival in a nation. That is how it came to place. Did you see it? Humbleness and repentance. Now, We know that he served about 31 years, correct? That's what it tells us. And the 18th year is when this thing started to take place. Now, there's two other kings. Let's read these quickly. And again, I'm not trying to dial in exactly on the year, but it's amazing how Daniel's upbringing would have been caught right in the middle of this revival. His parents must have been absolutely captured by a returning to God. Think of that. God started with an eight-year-old boy. He's now, years later, he has a 15-year-old in a foreign land that will serve him for the entire time of the captivity to be God's man in a foreign place in a time of crisis. That made a difference even today. When I read the book of Daniel, did you see this? We haven't even got anywhere today. Did you see this, folks? But this is what history does for us. When we turn back and look and see how God worked, it should make us stronger with our faith going forward. Isn't he good? It's fantastic. 
I can tell we're not going to get to the next verse. There's no way. There's too much. But if we don't get the context, we don't see how magnificent our God is. Now, I want you to see how this... Remember I said I was going to tie some things back together? Remember those three guys that I can't even say their names very well? We got another... We got, we got the last king of Assyria. I'm not even going to try, okay? He died. His co-regent was Nabopolassar. He's the father of Nebuchadnezzar. And he's at a battle. And watch verse 20 of Second Chronicles chapter 35. Now, we are jumping forward now. Verse 20. Oh, stop, stop. You, I, I, want, I want you to see how quickly this stuff... You see how I am? I just can't stand it. Okay, I had this verse just pop into my mind. But remember, last time we were in jo- Josiah, did you, you know where we were at? What year of the rain? What was it? The 18th, okay? I want, to see, I want you to see how much of this stuff that we just read about is smashed together in one year. Watch. Chapter 35, we're going we're gonna to bring this conclusion to this little thing. Let's start in verse 18. And there was no Passover like to that kept in Israel from the days of Samuel the prophet, neither did all the kings of Israel keep such a Passover as Josiah kept. I I need to take a little bit of a a side here. Verse chapter 35 talks about for the first time in many, 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 many years, the Jews observed the Passover. When they read the law and they saw how God miraculously took them out of the land of Egypt, they were to do that every single year. And Josiah saw it fit to start it. Watch now. Let's keep going. And the Levites and all Judah and Israel that were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Watch, verse 19. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah was this Passover kept. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what. 26 years of age was an awesome year for that man, wasn't it? He got it together. He got it together. Now watch, though. Verse 20. After all of this, when Josiah had prepared the temple. Oh, you remember this guy I talked about? Necho, the king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish. Remember I talked about that? That's the one where the Babylonians were going to take on the Assyrians. And then this guy from Egypt says, I'm going to go up and fight those guys by Euphrates. And Josiah went out against it. Now, see, the only way to get from Egypt to Carchemish is go through Israel. (laughs) Now, it's important to note the Egyptian dude, the pharaoh of Egypt, he didn't want to be looking for a fight from the guy from Israel. He wasn't looking for that one. He wanted the big battle. He did not want any distractions. But Josiah was feeling his oats. He must have thought he was invincible. And this has been a grand year. Keep in mind, do you think that wasn't fun to think about all of the things God was working in his life? But he wasn't listening. Let's keep watching. Let's watch it. All of these players, all of these characters that give context to where we're at. But he sent ambassadors to him saying, What have I to do with thee, thou king of Judah? This is the Egyptian pharaoh. I come not against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Forbear thee from meddling with God who is with me, that he destroy thee not. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he might fight with him and hearkened not unto the words of Necho from the mouth of God. And came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. That's an interesting place too. That shows up later in the whole panoramic of the future. The archer shot at King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, have me away for I am sorely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot. Put him on the second chariot that he had. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died. And was buried in one of the sepulchers of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. And Jeremiah lamented for Josiah. Remember Jeremiah? He's 
He's the guy that's prophesying right during this time of Daniel. Okay? And Jeremiah, I'm sorry. And all the singing men, the singing women, spoke of Josiah and their lamentations to this day and made them an ordinance in Israel. And behold, they are written in the lamentations. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah is goodness, according to that which was written in the law of the Lord and his deeds, first and last. Behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. So somewhere, obviously the 18th year, things were good. You can see an extended time of revival. And we know that, his, that his, he lasted into the 31st year. Obviously, that's when he died. See, I'm thinking that Daniel's parents were all involved in that 15-year stretch where things were really good at home. Really good at home. Isn't that fascinating to know how God is just intricately working in all of those details to literally make the next generation a man after God's own heart? A man that's set up for crisis in a world that's gone mad. Isn't that that is fascinating to see our God at work in those details. In those de- now, just watch this a little bit further. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Then it says, after he died, the people of the land took Jehoiahaz, the son of Josiah. Oh, it's the son of Josiah. And made him king in his father's stead in Jerusalem. Jeho- Jehoiahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for three months. Three months. Didn't go well. And the king of Egypt put him down at Jerusalem and condemned the land in a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim, his brother king, over Judah and Jerusalem and turned his name to, did you see it? Jehoiakim. Where did we see Jehoiakim to start with this afternoon? Daniel chapter 1. Do you see how relevant and all of this stuff starts to fit together? And in his third, it says in the third year, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, was when the Babylonians came and took Daniel and his classmates back to Babylon. That is an amazing story. That is an amazing story of God's mercy. That is an amazing story of God's love. That is an amazing story of God's warnings. I mean, at this point... Do you think Judah has had enough warnings? Let me for a moment talk, stop. Even now, even this one in 605 BC is still a huge warning. Do you know when Nebuchadnezzar came, his father, Nabopolazar, actually died in this event. He needed to go back home to take care of business. So he did three things to make sure that he set the course for the understanding of what had just happened, but not having time to complete it. He first of all left King Jehoiakim in charge because if this loser was going to follow after every other thing in the world, and now he had just whooped him, and then to make that very clear, he took vessels out of the temple and took them home to his god of Marduk, more than likely was the most prominent god. In Babylon, there was 50 temples for 50 different gods. You could go to a different God every week. Isn't that something? And there was a message there. When you took the vessels out of the most prized building in the country, it proved that their God was not as strong as my God where I'm going to put them into. 
coupled with what would make that king pay attention, Jehoiakim. Where were those 50 to 70 hostages taken from? The royal families. Would not Jehoiakim pay attention when I have 50 to 70 of those gifted, brilliant young men and I'm taking them home to Babylon? You see how smart Nebuchadnezzar was? That's what he did in 605 B.C. If that isn't a significant warning, I don't know what is. No one else left. No one else left. Is it time to get back with God? And just think of that, how quickly that was. Josiah led the people on a pathway to repentance back to God. And literally again, did you see already his son, just in three months after all of that, chose to totally snub his nose at God and move on. It's crazy. Are you tired? I think we're going to stop right there. Because I am amazed at the intricacy of how God works, especially when we start to go through history, looking at the splendor of his grace and mercy. He's doing the same thing in America today. He's getting young people. He's getting men and women that have failed. He's getting men and women that think there's no chance for them to be used. He is setting them up to be ready in a time of crisis because we are in a truth crisis in America. That is what was absent in the land of Judah. You can see it. That little boy, Josiah, at eight years of, old, eight years of age until his 18th year of reign, he's 26 years old, did not know the law of God. The nation is ready to receive when God calls them. But they must hear the message. And you say, and there's people that are not ready to hear? Yes, of course there is. More adamant, evil is more adamant than it's ever been. I'm amazed to look at posts and how, and how I, I'm, I'm going to share this with you, and it's almost, it's beyond, I don't know who this person was. They had a three-person panel. They were, it, was, it was in regards to women voting. And they asked these three ladies who they were voting for, and they each spoke of that. That's not important to me. What was important to me is the one that was a doctor spoke of something along this nature. The two things that stuck out to me is she was very concerned about the babies in cages, which would have been, as the, at the border, there was a separation time for these immigrants, these illegal immigrants, okay? And, there were, and, and I, don't know the, I don't know the discourse of all of that, but nonetheless, that's what's in the news. So she didn't want any more babies in cages, and she didn't want any more deterioration of reproductive rights. That's called killing babies, I don't see, see that to me is so far off that truth can't even enter that conversation. That's what we need to pray for. That's what a crisis has come. We are in a truth crisis where we can't even identify the truth of what's going on in our nation today. And in John, we looked at this in John chapter 14 and verse 15, chapter, I think it was 14, where Jesus told the truth and they tried to kill him. And I said this to truth seekers on Thursday night. If Jesus Christ was on the ballot for president of the United States, I think he'd lose. He would. We don't love God and the truth anymore. Not as a majority. No, there's no way. Isn't that sad? And yet, this is the time for us to stand in the gap. Stand firm because we have a God. We've just, I've unfolded for you today. I've just peeled pages and layers back of an event that was literally, what is that? That's 25, 2,600 years ago. 
And it fits exactly where we're at today. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Praise God. Nothing is impossible when God is on the throne and he's not going anywhere. <laughs> That's what I'm really happy about. He doesn't have to be voted in. He's on the throne, going nowhere. We just need to get on board with him. Let him play us like that violinist played that music and they just said, I don't even want to sell it to you. I just want you to have it. When we want ourselves to be God's, brand new game, brand new game. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the day. Thank you for your love, your mercy, and your warnings. We have looked at countless ways that you spoke to your people. And countless times, they refused to listen. And yet, the opportunities that were taken, the choices that were made, I'm thinking of these two young men, Josiah and Daniel. The difference that's made even as a result of today for us rehearsing that story, to see a 26-year-old man that had never really known the law of the Lord and to hear it and to be broken, to be repentant by it, to change his ways, to change those of the nation, to see a revival take place and to know that Daniel's family was somewhere involved in that. Had to be. And as God took Daniel, prepared and protected him in a land of Babylon, a foreign nation, contrary to everything that he had known or grown up with, for him to have that strong of a commitment to do what you wanted him to do, speaks of a powerful, powerful God. Father, we want to honor you. We want to worship you. We want to say back those things that we know are true. You being sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent. Oh, Father, we could go on and on. The characteristics that make you who you are. The infinite being that you are. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am who I am. Thank you for being long-suffering with us. The times of failure, the times that we are unfocused, the times that we get off course, may they not break us down, but bring us back. For Father, just as you've said as well, through John the Apostle, as we've been studying in First John, it says that he is faithful and just to forgive those that come in repentance. Father, when we ask for repentance, fellowship is restored. Help us, Father, today. There may be some that just need to receive that message of encouragement, knowing that you are a forgiver. Jesus paid for sin to bring us back, to get us back up, refocused, refitted for the battle and journey before us. Again, we honor you, thanking you for the spirit who has led us in this journey today. Father, I pray for re-election on Tuesday that your will would be accomplished and that people would, vi would vote biblically. Father, I leave it to you humbly bowing at your feet because regardless of circumstances or even the consequences of circumstances, when we are faithful and obedient to you, we are safe in the arms of yourself. Thank you for what you're accomplishing moment by moment, day by day, and one by one. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.